Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Welcome, and thank you for joining us for ASHP's Wellness Wednesday podcast. This podcast is a forum where you can listen in as members share successful strategies on wellness and resiliency in both their personal and professional lives. My name is Brittany Tashane, and I'm here with Joe Marciano, and we will be your co-host today for this ASHP Wellness Wednesday podcast. This is our third and final episode in our financial wellness series. For those who listened to the first and second episodes, you will recognize our co-host, Joe Marciano, who is also past chair of the New Practitioners Forum, Resident Advancement Advisory Group, also known as RAG. Thank you, Brittany. We are so excited to continue discussing financial wellness today by spotlighting another key topic chosen by our new practitioners audience. That topic is investing. And so we are here again with Dr. Bhavik Shah, who is a faculty member at the Thomas Jefferson College of Pharmacy in Philadelphia, where he teaches an entire elective course on finance for pharmacy students. You may also recognize him as the guest speaker on our first two episodes of the series. And for more information on Bavik's path, be sure to check out episode one. Thank you for joining us again today, Bavik. Hi, Joe and Brittany. Thanks again for having me on today's podcast. I'm really excited for our, our final episode. Yes, it is a pleasure. I know we are excited too. We are very much looking forward to the conversation today. But before we dive into today's topic, we know that information pertaining to finances, especially our topic in episode one, student loans is dynamic. And so I just wanted to check in to see if there's any updated information that you would like to share with our audience. Absolutely. I think when we recorded the episode one, it was in the spring. And since then, there have been some changes in the last month, in the month of July, we have had two services announce that they're not going to be continuing their relationship with the Department of Education after December 31st, 2021. One of them is Grand Estate Management and Resources, which probably affects not too many of our listeners, but the big one is going to be FedLoan. If you remember from episode one, FedLoan is the one that handles public service loan forgiveness. And so I would imagine that many of our listeners are thinking about doing public service loan forgiveness or are in the middle of their 10-year progress towards that. So what does this mean for those individuals? And what I guess what we know right now is that no new servicer has been identified as a replacement for Fred loan for public service loan forgiveness. So what I would encourage our listeners to do is in the, in the next few months before December 31st is to go into a Fed loan and make sure you download PDFs of, of all your payment history, any communication that you had with them, anything that you did in servicing your loans, because theoretically, once your account gets transferred to whoever the new provider is going to be, theoretically, everything will cross over. But there might be a chance that not all the information might cross over. So this is a way to sort of protect yourself and make sure you keep good records on your account. So go ahead and, you know, spend an afternoon or a morning when you don't have a lot going on and just downloading all those PDFs. Another change that we need to discuss is, or lack thereof perhaps, is right now the 0% forbearance is going to end the zero monthly payment is going to be ending on September 30th. And so no new news has come out in that regard, whether that's going to be extended or not. There has been some speculation and some 
outlets, uh, including Forbes, that it perhaps might be extended, especially given this news of servicers not renewing their contract after this year. I would imagine that there's probably a, a high probability that it might be extended, but you know that's still speculation. So that's something that would encourage listeners to, you know, this is a changing dynamic time and to follow the news and, and follow and contact your loan servicers to see what the status is after September 30th. Because as of now, on paper, loan repayments resume in October of 21. Thank you for that update, Bobak. That was a lot of information on changes that may directly impact our audience. That for me was a great example of why it is important to continue to learn more about these topics and to keep up with the most up-to-date information. And it sounds like additional changes may be anticipated in the near future. For those of you tuning in to our series for the first time, you can still find the recordings of the first two episodes and we encourage you to check it out. As a reminder to the audience, we are building this series based on topics that you and your colleagues have expressed the most interest in. After polling new practitioners, we have established today's topic as investing. So before we uh, get into today's topics, I just want to make sure, put out the disclaimer that I am not a licensed or certified financial planner, tax attorney, or accountant. I am a pharmacist. Uh, that is my training. But you know, my background in investing and interest in personal finance has come through sort of self-education. And so what I would say what we're going to discuss today is really for general educational information. And I would encourage listeners to make sure that you do your own due diligence before you take any action. And that what we discussed today is not intended to be financial investment advice, but again, to seek information or advice from a duly licensed professional and make sure you do your own due diligence before taking any action. Thank you, Bobak. Let's get started on our topic for today. I think there are a lot of questions about investing that I'm so excited to hear your opinions on. But first, I would like to start by asking one of the basics. Why should someone invest? Yeah, I think this is a really good question to start off on because I think it helps sort of frame the discussion of why we need to invest. And and I think we need to differentiate the two types of income one can have. We can have active income where you are working and exchanging your time, energy, effort, for income. And so this is going to be during your working years, uh, during your career. And this is in contrast with passive income where you don't necessarily have to exchange your time or your effort or your energy and you let your money make money. And so that way you could generate a living without having to put effort into it. And so when you retire, you either be working less or not at all, but you still have expenses and you will still need income. And so you need to be able to invest to have a passive income stream. And so one way some people might think of, I want to save for retirement, is to just save in a traditional savings account. And this is something that you know my parents certainly did, and because they didn't know about investing, and you know the savings account has a role, but it's not necessary for retirement because when you put money in a savings account, the interest rate that it earns, especially now in this very low interest rate environment, you're gonna earn very less than inflation. So your money is not keeping up with inflation. So in fact, by just keeping money in a savings account, it's becoming less valuable over time. And so what we need to do is to invest it in order for it to grow and not only outpace inflation, but also to grow in of itself. So by the time you retire, 
you have enough assets in place that you can generate a passive income stream. Wow. Based on those potential benefits, I think the next thing worth discussing would be what this investing might actually look like. So Bhavik, when you say investing, what sorts of things are you referring to or what kind of things might someone consider investing in? Yeah. So when we talk about investing, there's, you know, so many things that people can invest in. They can invest in fine art or individual businesses or in real estate. But for the focus of today, I think we're going to talk about what most people invest in, and that's going to be in the stock market and buying stocks and bonds. And so stocks are pieces of ownership of a company. And those companies can be small companies or mid-size or large companies. And their size of the company is based on upon how it's worth. Um, when you invest in stocks, this is generally considered a more risky investment because, you know, companies can go out of business, their stock value can go down, and so you lose money. So they're generally considered more risky. But in exchange for a more risky investment, you have a, a higher return on your money if and when the companies are successful. On the opposite end, on the lower side of investing in terms of risk profile, you have bonds. And bonds are essentially debt. And you are, as an investor, loaning money to an entity. And that entity can be a, a city, a state, or the federal government, or a corporation as a corporate bond. And these are generally considered less risky than stocks. But for that less risk, more safe investment, you're going to get a lower return. There's some other investments that folks can make, especially now there's getting more attention about cryptocurrency, Bitcoin and Dogecoin and that sort of thing. Those, those are considered high risk, high reward, as well as real estate. But for today, we're just going to really focus on stocks and bonds because that's where most people, when they think of investing, that's where they start off and stay in. Yeah. So that said, it sounds like there are a few options to consider when thinking about stocks and bonds. So what is your perspective on how someone might decide how to balance these things or what sort of difference in stocks and bonds that they own might they want to explore? Yeah, the balance or the ratio between how much stocks and bonds you have depends on a few things and there's no one size that fits all. And so the things that you should for all comers, so things that you should consider is your age. So generally the younger that you are, you can have more stocks because even though it's more risky, you will have more time for the markets to recover. The stocks go down. Your goal, what are you saving towards and how aggressive or not aggressive do you want to be? And also your risk profile. Are you more risk averse or are you a risk tolerant? If you're more risk tolerant, then you could generally have, you could probably have higher stocks than you do bonds. And if you're more risk averse and more conservative, uh, then you would have more bonds. So if you're more risk-taking or have a longer time horizon, like if you're a new practitioner and you're in your 20s or early 30s, you have a long time horizon for your retirement, you could probably have more stocks because you go right out any other dips in the market over the long run. But if you're either more risk-averse or you're closer to or in retirement, this is where you would have more bonds. And when we're talking about this, when we talk about the balance between stocks and bonds, this is known as your allocation. How much of your portfolio is allocated towards stocks and how much of it's allocated towards bonds. And this is referred to in percentages. So you could have a 60-40 portfolio where the first number 60 is refers to 60% of your portfolio 
is in stocks, and the second number at 40 is 40% bonds. And depending on your goals, your age, your risk tolerance, et cetera, you can have a portfolio that is 50-50, you could have 60-40, you can even have 100-0, so you could have be in all stocks. Again, this is all based upon your individual situation. But a general rule of thumb you could have is, that's sort of in many personal finance resources, is you take a number between 100 to 120. More recently, uh, it's been towards 120, and you subtract your age from that. And this will give you an idea, of, generally speaking, of how much stocks you should have as a percentage. So if you're at almost 40, I would take 120 minus 40, and I would have about 80% of my portfolio should be considered in stocks. Again, this is a rule of thumb. You could customize it. You could become more aggressive or less aggressive, again, depending on your own individual situation. But this is sort of a good starting point for a discussion where then you can customize it. Based on what you discussed, it sounds like the first step is to determine an allocation. But let's discuss where to go from there. Once you decide on what allocation you want, how would you go about picking what stocks and bonds to buy? So in your employer 401k or 403b plan, it's probably likely you'll have access to mutual funds inside an IRA, an individual retirement account. This is where you can open up your own account on your own, independent of whatever company that your employer uses for your retirement account. You could probably do mutual funds in there, but you could also choose to do individual stocks if you wanted to. If you want more information about the differences between a 401k, 403b, and IRAs, I would encourage listeners to listen to episode two. But once you decide what kind of account you want and decide how much you're going to put in, you have to come make sure you're going to choose an investment. And oftentimes people are going to be using mutual funds and mutual funds are essentially a basket of underlying stocks or bonds or assets in general. So instead of you individually doing the research of, of deciding what individual companies to buy, you just buy all the companies. So you could buy hundreds or thousands of companies for instant diversification. And diversification is good because you don't know how a company is going to do in the long run. You could have some winners, you could have some losers, but if you buy a little bit of everything, you know, you generally come out ahead. And so this approach, mutual funds is sort of akin to, you know, you buy an entire haystack instead of trying to find which needle is going to be your, your winner. And so mutual funds are a great way to do that. Mutual funds, they come in all kinds of varieties. You could have mutual funds for U.S. stocks, American stocks, international stocks, American bonds, international bonds, etc. You could also have mutual funds targeted towards specific sectors of the economy, such as healthcare or real estate or technology, you could also have mutual funds for specific size companies, like small, mid-sized, or large-sized companies, depending on what you're looking for. They also have mutual funds for if a company is considered a growth company that's actively expanding and growing versus a company that's known as a value mutual fund, where you're getting a discount for how much a company ought to be worth and what it's currently selling for. So there's a little bit of everything for you to do and you can pick and choose what you want. But the approach that I do for myself is, you know, I don't have time to 
invest research every single thing because you know i have a career <laughs> and so what i do is i just do a a total u.s stock market a total international mutual fund and a total u.s bond mutual fund and so this is known as a three fund portfolio and it's a simple approach where you could buy three things that each of them holds hundreds of not thousands of other things and so it's a way to become broadly diversified. This approach is you know, advocated by the Bogle heads, uh, which is coming out of uh, Jim Bogle, the founder of Vanguard. And so a way of be able to meet your goals in a broadly diversified manner. This is a lot of great information. But for someone who is new to this process, this is a lot to take in. Are there other ways to accomplish these goals? Absolutely. Constructing your own portfolio is very overwhelming. And at the beginning, I didn't know how to do it. And actually, a, a good chunk of my portfolio is in what are known as target date funds. And a target date fund is a mutual fund of mutual funds. And so you buy one fund that has all these underlying assets in it. And what's nice about target date mutual funds is that they automatically adjust to become less risky, so they become more bond heavy as you get closer to your target date. That target date can be whatever date you want it to be for whatever your goal you have. So for me, I am anticipating to retire around in the year 2050. So a good chunk of my portfolio is in a target date 2050 index fund. But you could use target date funds for other goals too. So you could use a target date index fund for, let's say, if you're saving for college for a child or a niece or nephew or, or whoever, and they're going to turn, my son's going to turn 18 in the year 2035, I can invest in a target date 2035 index fund if my purpose of that investment is for college. And so you could use target date funds for for any goal you have, and it's a one-stop shop, set it, forget it. And I, this is something that I would strongly consider, listeners to consider as a beginner, because it, you know, in the beginning stages, it's more important that you set up those habits and start saving as much as you can. And a target day fund is an approachable way of doing that. And a matter of fact, in most employers, this is going to be the default setting, is going to be a target date index fund. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it is definitely interesting that there are multiple different ways to approach these investment strategies based upon your own goals. But Bavik, you mentioned index funds. So would you be able to elaborate a little bit more about what that means exactly and what it's compared to? Sure. We talked earlier about mutual funds and the different types of mutual funds. You could have stocks and bond mutual funds. You could have different sectors and different size companies, et cetera. But when we talk about mutual funds even more broadly, there are two different investment philosophies of mutual funds. You can have actively managed mutual funds and you could have indexed mutual funds and they have different objectives. An actively managed mutual fund is going to have a manager, a fund manager or a team of fund managers who are trying to pick and choose individual holdings, individual companies or assets to put inside that mutual fund. And the objective of the active mutual funds is to beat the market. And so you, they're trying to outperform the general market. Uh, index fund is 
a different approach. The approach is you're not trying to beat the market. You're trying to match the market. So you're trying to match the overall stock market or the S&P 500, which is the largest 500 companies in the U.S. And so with index funds, you have a, a manager, but it's because their goal is to just match the market. It can be done through computer algorithms. And so the index funds generally have a very low cost associated with it versus actively managed funds. And so a big difference are the fees, these costs. And whenever you make an investment, it's going to cost you money to make that investment of whatever asset that you're buying, whether it's a mutual index fund or a mutual or a actively managed mutual fund. Because with the actively managed fund, the reason for the higher fee is because you have to pay for those managers. And so those fees, you don't necessarily get a bill in, in the mail or in your account separately that you get to pay out of. It just comes right out of your account. So it's sort of built in and you don't really notice it. But those fees certainly add up. And so a, a typical actively managed fund can have a fee of 1%, which is not unheard of. And over a 40-year investment period, that 1% can cause your retirement portfolio balance at the end of 40 years to be about a third less than what it could have been if you used index funds. And so, for example, I have in my portfolio, my index funds, between stocks, bonds, U.S. and international, it's about 0.1%. And over the next 40 years, that 0.1% is going to cost me 4% of my overall account balance after 40 years compared to 33%. So, you know, fees are something that you as an investor can control because we cannot control the market. We don't know if the market's going to go down or up at any given period of time. But what we do know is that the fees have to be paid no matter what. And so for an actively managed fund, whether they do well or not, you have to pay that fee. And over the life of the investing, it adds up. And so, you know, 1% may not sound that much different, but over a long period of time, it adds up. And then what I would also caution listeners to consider is that actively managed funds typically underperform index funds. And so there's some data out there that anywhere between 80 to 86% of, and sometimes higher, of actively managed funds over a 15-year period underperform the index. So to me, it didn't make sense to pay a higher fee for less return or less performance. And so I avoid actively managed funds whenever possible. And so a way you could do this is whenever you're investing is whether you're using your employer's 401k or 403b, you get a list of, of assets. You know, you could look at their fees and their expense ratios and see if it has the word index or not. And, you know, you can then consider preferentially using those index funds that are going to have low fees. And, you know, if you're going to use a target date fund that we talked about earlier, make sure it's a target date index fund because, you know, some companies like Fidelity offer actively managed target date mutual funds. And they also offer target date index funds as well. So you just want to make sure you're using the index version of it. Thank you for breaking that down. That is really good to put things in perspective over an entire career. It really highlights the potentially large effects of small changes over time. And that leads me to my next question. I've seen a lot of commercials for ETFs over time, but I don't have a good understanding of what they are advertising. Can you explain what an ETF is and how does that differ from a mutual fund? 
Sure. ETFs are gaining a lot of popularity and they're certainly, it doesn't surprise me that you're seeing this sort of advertised at all. So ETF stands for exchange traded fund and ETFs and mutual funds are more, they have more similarities than they do differences. They're similar in the sense that ETFs, you could have an actively managed ETF and you could also have an index based ETF. So if you're going to do ETFs, you should strongly consider the index version of it. The expense ratios for index-based ETFs are going to be very similar to index versions of mutual funds. You can have ETFs of this total stock market, total bond market, U.S., international, different sectors. There's a lot of similarities and there are differences. And oftentimes when you go and invest, you will see them sort of shown side by side. So for example, Vanguard, I have a number of my investments with Vanguard, you can have a total U.S. stock market known as VT Sachs. And the ETF version of this is VTI. So they both track the same index. One's just a mutual fund version and the other one is the ETF version. They're both low cost indexed investments. The difference in them is how they're traded. So mutual funds, they get when you decide to buy a mutual fund, you had to wait until the stock market closes. And then the price that is determined happens after the stock market closes. And that would tell you how many shares of that mutual fund you're going to buy. ETFs, on the other hand, are basically traded throughout the day like a stock. And so the price can fluctuate up and down throughout the day. So you can buy it at that moment in time. Another difference with ETFs is that they're considered to be a little bit more tax efficient in the sense that they generate less taxable income compared to their mutual funds. And this is going to be really important if you have a taxable brokerage account, you may want to consider using ETFs in that instead of mutual funds. But again, this is kind of very nuanced very, and splitting hairs. With Vanguard, they actually have a patent on their system. So their tax efficiency between the ETFs and mutual funds is, is negligible. But for the, some of the other providers, it might make sense to use the ETF version if you want to consider having a, a better tax efficiency. One quick way to tell whether you have an ETF or a mutual fund is a mutual fund is typically going to have a five-letter ticker symbol. So I mentioned Vanguard. Uh, their total stock market is VT Sachs. And their ETF version is VTI. And so ETFs are typically going to be a two, three, or four letter ticker symbol. Thank you so much for that information. Now for our last question, thinking a little bit more about how to potentially put this information into practice. Could you talk a little bit more about how somebody might select the firm that they should pick for an IRA? and how an IRA in general just fits into this information about investing? Sure, yeah, so if you remember from episode two, and if you haven't listened to it, I would ask you that you check it out. An IRA stands for Individual Retirement Account, and this is where you can pick and choose which firm is gonna be best for you. And so the way you could go about doing and consider is what investments are being offered by that firm. A lot of times the firms are going to have their own in-house line and you could buy a, another line when they might charge you a fee. So if I, ha I have Vanguard, if I really wanted to, I could buy a Fidelity version of mutual funds and ETFs at Vanguard, but it would charge me a fee if I wanted to buy Fidelity's version. 
And so what I would say is, you know, whichever version you like, you know, just pick it, open it up at that in-house account. And so things that you want to consider is the expense ratio. So generally you want to have all else being equal, you want to pick the lowest expense ratio that suits your goals of having an index fund that's broadly diversified. Other things you want to consider is the different account minimums that might have or different fees. Vanguard, it can cost you, you know, and to get access to Vanguard's cheapest mutual funds, it's called the Admiral class or the Admiral line. You need to generally have $3,000, which may be a lot, especially for a new practitioner to have to be able to invest. Versus Fidelity and Schwab, you know, they either have lower fees, lower minimums, or no minimums at all. So something to consider. Other things to consider are the degree of automation. I wanted to pick something that, you know, I could set it and forget it. So every month I have, you know, it's going to take this much amount of money out of my checking account and invest in these investments. And then I just let it do it. And I don't have to log in every single time. So that's something that you want to consider. You also want to consider the ability to buy fractional shares. This is important, especially for ETFs, because with mutual funds, you could buy, let's say a mutual fund, one share of a mutual fund costs $200, but you only have $100 to invest. You could buy $100 worth. And so you would just get a half a share. With ETFs, with many of the firms, you need to be able to buy a full share. You may not have the ability to buy that full share. You may not have the resources. Then, you know, you won't be able to buy that ETF until you get that full amount. So some firms allow you to buy fractional shares of ETFs. And so these are all the things that I consider. And so, you know, there are many, many different companies that are involved that are firms. So you could have Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, but there's others too. There's TD Ameritrade, E-Trade, Robinhood, et cetera. And they all have different user experiences, customer service. And and you want to think about these things that we talked about earlier. But for me, I would consider for new investors, especially definitely take a look at Fidelity and Schwab because I think it has lower barrier of entry and you could get access to a a huge menu of cheap index funds. And I think that's where you would start to look at. Thank you so much. With all of those considerations, Bhavik, would you mind just sharing what your experiences have been with these firms? Absolutely. So for my 403B, it's at TIA Craft, which is what my employer has chosen as the provider. And inside there, I just use their index target date fund. And for my IRA, I have a Roth IRA. If you remember from episode two, I do a backdoor Roth IRA every year. And I have that with Vanguard. For my taxable brokerage account, I actually have it with M1 Finance. I decided not to have my taxable brokerage account at Vanguard because Vanguard does not allow for automated investing with fractional ETFs. And that was really important to me because I am very much set it and forget it way of my approach to investing. And so with M1, it's free to use. There's no fees to use M1. And you can actually buy Vanguard ETFs on M1's platform. And so that's what I do. So all my investments, in my Roth IRA and in my taxable brokerage are still Vanguard funds, but I'm just using a different provider for my taxable brokerage account. I just want to just make a, a quick note to our listeners that is, I am not endorsing any of these firms or I'm not getting paid to recommend them or anything like that. This is just what I use for my own accounts. 
Well, we definitely appreciate all of your insight and all of the information that you've been able to provide for us, Bobic. That is all the time that we have for today. So thank you again so much for sharing your experiences, not only today about investing, but through our other podcast episodes as well, and all the information that was discussed during those two episodes. This whole series is something that I am really excited to share with my new practitioner colleagues, as well as student pharmacists, because I really believe that this information is so helpful. So thank you again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And as Joe mentioned, that finishes up our three-part financial wellness podcast series. Thank you to all the new practitioners who helped us decide our topics and let us know what else you would like to hear more about on social media in the future. In addition, we encourage you to listen to Wellness Wednesdays by AFHP and subscribe on Spotify for future recordings. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.